from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you via Zoom. We've been coming via Zoom since March 2020 when the pandemic hit. Usually that means we get the full crowd in here because of the magic of technology. Today, we don't have the full crowd. Adi Weiner is doing Adi Weiner things. Eric Bradlow, Eric Bradlow things. Shane Jensen and I are holding down the fort and we will be here for the duration. We have a couple of interview segments, one on hockey analytics, one on tennis analytics, two delightful analysts to talk to about their work and the sports that they work in. We've got a little COVID to talk about up top, but we have just watched, we're taping on Tuesday afternoon and we've just watched penalty kicks in the Euro semis with Italy advancing to the finals three, two or four, two, four, two. The Spanish team didn't even get to take their last penalty kick because they couldn't get there. It it was fun. It was fun, Shane. It's always fun when it. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like penalty kicks again. As, as a casual follower of the sport, penalty kicks are always exciting. They always seem very dissatisfying to me oh in the same way, like kind of sudden death in football seems to say. You know, it just seems like it's a very different kind of. I mean, it's an entirely different. Yeah, I mean, the game is decided in a way that yeah. the rest of the game is completely separated from the rest of the game. It's like That's a little right. skills competition at the end. Um, I don't know if I think if I was a, a an even stronger soccer fan, I feel like I would feel more strongly that they should kind of do overtime the way basketball and hockey does overtime, which is just keep going until there's an actual kind of they winner might, in in, in a similar people. kind of fashion to the they game might kill itself. people, Shane. They might end up just no, walking I, I, down the pitch. <laughs> I, and I, I know I know why it's done the way it is because you know that again soccer I, I mean again they they would maybe have to do something like you know baseball adding the extra guy on second base to mm-hmm. add something into the game to make scoring a little bit more likely at uh, least take, you could they could play they could take guys off the pitch they could also yeah. reduce the pitch you know play like we do out in the playgrounds with real yeah. small and just keep That's on right. doing that until it's two guys. And Matty Dad's just popped out a comment. A lot more substitutions would be an obvious thing. Yeah, I mean, I think just to address like kind of health considerations, adding more substitutions would have to be definitely something that would that, that happen. But yeah, I uh, but, but it is I don't fun. Know. I mean, it's 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 great fun. It's it's mind boggling to think about the pressure that those guys face, and the goalies are kind of supposed to fail, so they're in yeah. not as bad a situation. But the guys making taking those shots, you're supposed to make it, and then you know we had we had three Spanish guys missed their shots and some yeah. of them, it just, it's just unbelievable pressure. We, when we did the world cup last, we turned up some research on penalty kick performance and I don't recall it. There's some out yeah. there and you can see the impact of pressure on the success of penalty kicks. I mean, as you would expect, you can see the impact. It's also one of those things where you think there are individual differences, but there's just not enough data to suss out. Yeah, and you, you I mean, you, you kind of, it's, it, there's, there must be kind of analytics. I like, you know, I mean, even the, the broadcasters were kind of talking about, like, oh my goodness, he went to the other side from where he did it earlier in the tournament, all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, there, there, yeah. I, I think there's got to be a little kind of a lot of cool analytics in both, like, kind of trying to predict you know, shooter tendencies, goal, goal, goalie tendencies, as well as trying to make, make, you know, you know, the counterpart of that is like, you know, studying your own tendencies and making sure you stay unpredictable right. and all these types of things. So I, there's gotta be so much kind of cool analysis there, but I mean, I would guess that like, you know, in terms of like trying to differentiate 
good performance at penalty kicking versus not good. I, I mean, I, again, on a player by player Shane, basis, I, there can't be enough data. Right, right, right. I'm strategically, we had, we had a couple guys take definitive shots. There's no deception involved. I'm just going to pick my spot. I'm going to hit my spot successfully and unsuccessfully. And then we had some guys who like do a little of a slow play. Let me get the goalie going one direction and I'll punch it the other way. So even there are these broad strategic choices that are made. And I don't know how much variation guys have within their own play. Like are some guys, can they do either one? And some guys are like, Nope, I'm going to do one thing. It's, right. it's, it's a fascinating little bit, but I'm most struck by is the absurdity of such an important advance happening on such I know. chance. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, honestly that, you know, it's just kind of a, an extra sort of feel good, like, you know, allowing the players to be more involved in kind of a glorified coin flip to, to, to kind of like resolve a tie game is the way I always see penalty kicks, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for such a consequential, match in such a consequential tournament to kind of come down to this sort of like glorified skills-based coin flip. And it is what it is. I, I, well, I yeah, look, have... you got, yeah, there are some constraints obviously, but it, it is, it's one more wrinkle in the tournament design decision, t- the conversations we have about the relative chance. Look, Matty D chased this, these uh, data. So it's fun. It's very appropriate today to look at these data. So if a guy takes a penalty kick during normal time, they score on average 85% of the time. So it gives you a nice base rate for, um, you know, the guys generally going to make the shot. But if they take it during the shootout portion, a penalty shootout to determine the match, and they're, they're basically the first, you know, five guys will take it. Best the team that has the most after five, and then they keep on going if, if nobody has the most. But if they're in that situation, the success drops from 85 to 76. So you can see the impact of pressure. But the more interesting flip is the difference between taking a shot to win versus taking a shot to not lose. And we didn't quite have that situation here because the Spanish player picking yeah. fourth kind of had it, but not definitively. He could lose it. Actually, he did have it because if he missed that shot, he was his team was going to – no, that's not – it wasn't it, – it was we, we definitely had a shot to not lose, basically, that was not successful, right? No, no, no we end. had a shot to win. The only thing we had – Oh, right, right, sure, yeah, right. that's right, that's right, that's right. I forgot the, the ordering the of it, yeah. Fifth Italian player, if they made that goal, the Spanish team could not win. And that's a 92% situation versus imagine that they make that. So Italy's up, just say it was five, four and the last Spanish kicker comes up and if he makes it, he ties. If he misses, it loses. This is the most pressure situation they face success in that situation drops to 60%. Wow. So, so you really get kind of both ends of the spectrum. It's incredible. That, it, that, right? it's, yeah. it's incredible. The difference between, Shoot, kicking to win versus kicking to not lose. And I mean, like it would be kind of, I mean, obviously we probably don't have the data on us right now, but to break that down by if they have an, you know, unsuccessful play, is it because they're missing, like, are they taking a strong kiss and kicking, missing right. their, like, well, how does pressure most affect you? Is it like oh. just not hitting your, hitting your spot? Or is it like, you know, you know, yeah, or is it goalie saving more often, et cetera. So yeah, do you, you might get, you might not take those strong, um, assertive. I'm picking my spots and let the guy, and I don't know. It's a super interesting yeah. question. Well, more power to the Italians. I didn't have a strong preference. Do you have any preference on that one, Shane? Uh, not on that one. Not really. No. Um, well, we got England, Denmark tomorrow, and everyone likes this English team. And um, obviously, everyone's pulling for the, the the Denmark team after they lost one of their best players to a daggum heart attack on the first on the first match. So it's kind of a it's it's a fun match in that. They're kind of favorites 
a lot of people anyway, a lot mm-hmm. of people around here pulling for both teams. English are big favorites there. The English are these, like these tortured soccer fans. You know, it's easy for us to say, but they're kind of the Chicago Cubs of the international soccer scene. Yeah. Yeah. They've never won a European championship. They've been, they've been playing these things for 60 years. It's every four years. The English yeah. have never won a European championship and they haven't won a world cup, you know, in like 50 years or whatever it's been. Well, since the late sixties, I mean, I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are actually the best kind of analog. Cause I think it was around that same time okay. that the Maple okay. Leafs won their last Stanley cup. And of course okay. it's, it, it's in addition to them kind of being this for like, you know, the, these, the, this team with a lot, a lot of these kind of like high profile losses, it's also like, you know, a place where like soccer energy is at its strongest too. Yeah, right. So I think yeah. that is kind of, uh, you and know, also, that, it is ironic at, at the very least. And they're also both in the Commonwealth, of course, just to add a little yeah. bit. Of so this could be the year that the English. Yeah. And I think this is kind of by FIFA rankings, the a year, like this is kind of at a time when England's about as strong as they've really kind of ever been. Right. So. Um, and, and they're hosting this, this yeah. match. So Wembley, the game tomorrow is in Wembley. Good book. Good fun. Of course, they're going to have to run. Whoever wins that will have to go against the Italians for the final. But it's been fun. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the year as a great deal. Um, a little bit of warm. Does this mean we're going to get – this was delayed a year, right? Are we getting World Cup next year or is World Cup getting bumped out a year? It must be next That's year. That's a good question. Yeah, it's I think it next is year. next year, right? Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to be short, a short uh, distance between the national um, competitions. But uh, I think it's a nice little warm-up. And Maddie D, we got to get Chris Alexopoulos to come talk to us. I think he's been over there producing these things, and it'd be fun. I mean, talk about a life. You want a fantasy life. How about producing soccer whenever the Euros are on? Bouncing around these different cities and having – I'm sure he's stressed all the time, but I'm sure he's having a good time. So we'll get an update from Zop and the preview on the World Cup. Okay, we're talking about this because we just watched these penalty kicks happen, and we couldn't help – but talk about it, but we usually open with a little COVID. And so let's do talk a little bit of COVID. Um, the, if you look at the numbers in the U S it's kind of, the cases are kind of flat. They're bouncing around and a little bit up, a little bit down. They've been flat for the better part of June and into July now, but deaths from COVID continued to drop. And so this is something that we were told about the Delta variant that seems to be bearing out. Contagiousness is higher than the traditional, but fatalities are a little bit lower. Or perhaps it's just that the most vulnerable populations have already been either killed or vaccinated. And so the people who are contracting this are in general less less vulnerable. But we're seeing this trend you get these little pockets, you know, we've talked on the show about heterogeneity and there are these pockets of uh, folks who aren't vaccinated and that could lead to breakouts. I did see a report where there was something like 125 cases that came out of a summer camp, a church summer camp in South Texas. Some 400 people or so went to this thing and Mm -hmm. 125 cases come out of it. This is a population who apparently were not highly vaccinated and a good example of how these pockets can have these breakouts. And we're worried that we'll see more of these in other parts of the country. And I mean, speaking, I mean, not to link it back uh, too grimly to the the soccer results, but I mean, England or the UK in general is an enigma to me as well, because there's a situation, I mean, they're seeing a real uptick in cases. Now, again, not the commiserate deaths, because I think it is most of the Delta variant over there, but it, in a situation where they're, I mean, they're at least as vaccinated as, we are right uh, here in America. I think more. Um, I think and and so and and also, I mean, again, I, I don't know what it's actually like on the ground, but at least uh, according to news reports, much more continuing to be relatively locked down 
compared to America. So I, I just sort of like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm a little surprised still to sort of see, at least in a case sense, things continue to, I mean, almost, I mean, if you look at the most recent results, it almost things looks like things are spiking again in the United Kingdom, even in the context of these kind of like them being a little, at least a little bit more conservative in terms of maintaining social distancing type regulations right. as well right. as basically being where we are, if, if not better in terms of vaccination. Well, we, I, I should back off. I don't know for a fact that we're vaccinated. They, they were out ahead of us, but it's, I, I think they were out ahead of us. Maybe I've got mm-hmm. that wrong. I'm going to back off. I mean, I mean according vaccinated. to New York times they are about 50% fully vaccinated now and at least six, about 68% with one dose. So that kind of lands them somewhere in the middle of, you know, the various States of America, I think. Okay. Okay. Well, um, a couple other notes on COVID that have caught my eye this past week. One is this, this, this very strong line that came out on the side effects. There's, there's, you know, people have worried about vaccinations because of potential side effects. And there's lots of little stories about these side effects that emerge, you know, months later. And it's kind of this urban myth kind of approach to vac- to, to side effects. And apparently in the history of vaccines, there's this quote coming out uh, uh, from folks who know these things, that hist- in the history of vac- vac- vaccines, side effects have always appeared within two months of administration. There is no example in vaccination history of side effects that appear at a greater, de- greater delay than two months after administration. So that should allay, it should allay some concerns, mm-hmm. but it's not like science has allayed all the concerns that have been voiced about this thing. Um, A a little bit more depressing, Shane, is a study recently by a grad student, a group of a group, a group of grad students. I think they're economists at Stanford. David Lang is the lead author on this thing. David Lang at Stanford did a little study. He took advantage is a great economist thing to do. They took advantage of kind of the natural experiment that happens when Ohio State announced their lottery for Vaximillion, I think they call it. And we had the governor of Ohio on to talk about this. We were very excited about this. And it seemed like there was a bump there initially. But these guys have looked carefully at the impact of that lottery. And now we've seen more states do it, but Ohio was up front and we've got good data on what happens there. And they compare the impact to a kind of synthetic portfolio of states that weren't doing the lottery, and they find that there was not a significant effect. And they look across other states who have since come up with vaccination lotteries, and they do not see big changes in vaccination rates as a result of these things. So we just want to air that out. Our our friend Mike Dariano, who you can follow on Twitter and often has good analytics information, Mike Dariano pointed that out for us. And we wanted to air it out because we were excited about that. And we talked to the governor who we're enthusiastic about. He's been on the kind of the front lines of this thing from the beginning. And the, but we're, 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 we're slaves to the data, Shane, and the data are saying that there aren't big effects from these lotteries. How surprised are you by that? Well, I mean, bummed. I, I guess a little bit surprised, a little bit bummed out that there's not, you know, a, a, a bigger effect, I guess, to this. I mean, especially because I think in the context when we were interviewing the governor, I think it was maybe after the first, you know, there was already at least, at our peaking at the data ahead of like, it looked like there was at least a little bit of an upswing in vaccinations kind of around that time, perhaps, you know, it ended up being kind of due due to some other thing. Uh, I will say though, with at least, you know, kind of with the kind of general approach that they're taking in this paper of using kind of synthetic control sort of idea, I just want to kind of point out, I, I think it's a really kind of cool idea in general to, I mean, a recognize that when you're, 
trying to kind of compare the efficacy of some intervention that Ohio is doing, that you need to find some kind of comparable control group for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nice thing about this kind of synthetic control idea is it's, it kind of recognizes that you're not going to be able to actually find any single state that's a good control for Ohio. Ohio mm-hmm is a big and unique kind of state in a lot of different ways. And basically any state you could probably think of in America, it's going to be hard to kind of find an exact comparable control group, maybe North and South Dakota, but other than that. (laughs) No, that's just a superficial similarity. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, regardless, we can all recognize that Ohio is a a unique place that no, no one state can kind of form the right control group for. So instead you do a weighted kind of a control group that's kind of a, a weighted average of different states. You know, maybe you have California as, as, as a control for some of the kind of bigger cities, but then you have Washington as a control for maybe some of the GI man, I'm just completely pulling this out of my butt at this point, but like this, this idea that even though no one state can really be an apples and apples comparison to Ohio, maybe some combination, you know, some weighted combination of states right. can be. And so right. I think I, 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 though I, I, I guess I haven't read their methodology in super detail. Um, I like their kind of general approach. I'm a little bummed that it does, you know, kind of resulted in maybe this uh, lack of uh, a, a signal to this lottery. Cause I also like you was really excited about the lottery idea, but, but yeah, well, definitely. I like the approach. I, I, I love that. Um, you know, I love that they run the study and it's good that we, we got it. We got to track these things, right? We can't just praise them and move on. We want to track, we want to praise them and, uh, and then find out whether they work or not and find, and learn. And of course we need to push deeper to understand why this wasn't more effective. And it could be that, you know, they, they, they grabbed a bump, but then those people were getting, yeah. they, or, they, or it could be that it was actually quite effective. You know, maybe it was quite effective within certain subgroups, but, you know, kind of averaged over a whole population with, you know, maybe, didn't look as effective, et cetera. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um, one last bit on COVID. We've got a question. It's been two weeks now, but I was away last week. So I want to ask it of you, Shane. Mike Shannon asked us on this on Twitter. He asked, what is the over under on the last time we cover COVID in Q1? So this has become our tradition since March or so when we, when COVID hit, we just, you know, this was so pressing for all of us in our life and involved analytics and forecasts, which is kind of what we're interested in. And, and truthfully, we've been using it to make, I mean, at least I selfishly have been using it to process and make sense of the world. So doing that with you guys for even just half an hour once a week has, has helped. And, and Mike's asking, okay, what's, he's kind of using this to operationalize yeah. when we think this is going to be over. Yeah. What's what's an over under? No, and it's great because I get to now make a predictive model of our decision making, kind of lot, lot, you know, in, in in real time. I mean, I think, you know, it, it kind of depends. I mean, a, we can break this down into kind of maybe two sub questions, which is when will COVID? When do we predict COVID will essentially stop affecting sports? Right. Because that's kind of at least the context in which we started paying attention to COVID, though, of course, we also were paying attention because it completely affected yeah. our lives outside of sports. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the other kind of question, sub question to ask is when will COVID stop being interesting? You know, essentially. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and Good. so, I mean, the answer to that perhaps is when it becomes like the flu you know, really becomes like the flu in terms of like, it, uh, it for hopefully ha- has at least as low of a death rate, et cetera. And it just becomes this kind of regular thing. And even in that case, maybe it become, it stays interesting. I'm not, maybe COVID never stops being interesting, but I think it'll stop affecting sports probably. Relevance. There's, there's a relevance. By, 
by like late fall, like basically once this, once our current baseball season's wrapped up. Okay. So you're saying world series. Yeah. You're saying world series is your over under. I'm, I'm inclined to take the over. Mm-hmm. I, I've been really trending towards the under, but man, this Delta variant, for example, and the pockets yeah. of the US and, and challenges internationally, it's not clear to me that we're that close to the end. Um, now, maybe everybody will just get bored and we'll move on, but it's, 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 not, it's not clear. I'm going to go the over. You're going World Series. I'm going over reluctantly, but I like the question from Mike. We'll see how it pans out. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Abe Massey here hosting with my buddy Shane Jensen. We've got uh, a delighted to have a guest, another guest on our show here this week. It's Stanley Cup playoffs time. We're doubling down on hockey analytics. We're showing those naysayers that we're actually deep on hockey analytics. We're welcoming this time Micah McCurdy. Micah is a mathematician working in the hockey analytics space. He is the founder of an organization doing cool work on that. It is hockeyviz.com, hockeyviz.com. You can also follow Micah after this conversation. You're going to want to follow him. Micah is on Twitter at ineffective math, ineffective math. We're going to argue with you, Micah. We think your math is very effective. You are third Stanley cup guest in the last month. I mean, hockey guest in the last month. Are you enjoying this Stanley cup playoff run? Is this a, does this feel like a normal Stanley Cup playoffs? Is it more enjoyable, less enjoyable? What's your take so far, Micah? For enjoyment, I've been enjoying it as much as I always do. I think there's always there's always some pretty good storylines, you know, even if the officiating hasn't been great and, and there's been, you know, some some stinkers and amongst the really good stuff. Um, but I uh, I have a special fondness for goaltenders, and so I always like to see uh, goalies just take over games, and there's been no shortage of that these playoffs, so I've enjoyed that. Yeah, right. So where does your fondness for goaltenders come from? Oh, well, I played a little bit of soccer as a kid and I was a goalie. Okay. I've always wondered what kind of both psychology and physiology goes into being a soccer goalie. The one, the one person not running around the pitch. Why, well, why were you a goalie, Micah? Uh, I loved it. And I grew up in Scotland, actually. And there it was mandatory to play. You had to play. That was the general <laughs> You know, every like I was I was a little bit weird because I didn't show up early before school to play extra. Okay. Um, but I was right. also terrible compared to the others. And and when you're in a country like Scotland, the terrible players all have to go and goal. And I <laughs> I liked it. Some sort of psychology there, as you say. Well, um, they, I mean, they, you know, they get themselves in such incredible high pressure situations, at least in the soccer that I watch, which is, you know, Euros and and World Cups and these penalty kick situations are just unbelievable for these guys. But listen, you're a long way from that now. You're in Halifax, Nova Scotia, of all things. What what has you in Halifax? So my the like I say, I grew up in Scotland because my dad was there for a few years doing his PhD. Um, but he's from Halifax, and so when when my wife and I started a family, we came back sort of home to roost from various academic wanderings. The the Twitter handle, incidentally, is a joke about how I was trained as a mathematician, but I could never get a job as a mathematician. Uh-huh. And so I couldn't get a research position um, teaching math. I still do a little bit of teaching on the side. But, okay. uh, but so hockey is kind of a second career for me. I got to slum it among the applied people. <laughs> oh, we're, 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 
It's We're not so bad. That. It's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got to say, it's a lot more fun. It is fun. There's no question it's fun. Hey, tell me something about Halifax. How would I know if you dropped me in the middle of Halifax? Because it's something I've always been intrigued by. How would I know I'm in Halifax? What would stand out about walking around the middle of Halifax? Uh, well, if you were in the middle of downtown, you would discover an extremely large hill uh, and called Citadel Hill. And you would, uh, in particular, if you were to have a, a nice night out on the town, um, you would probably have to walk around it um, <laughs> to, uh, to get back to where you lived. And the, the number one trick for if you've had a proper night out on the town or not is if you've had enough, you think to yourself, maybe I'll just go over the hill. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is, and once you have that thought, now, you know, you're, uh, now, you know, you live there now. Okay, good. All right. And, and, and would you say that like having, you know, once you've lived a long time in Halifax, you're, you're trained enough for Pittsburgh because I feel like Pittsburgh is also a very similar kind of city, both in geography and bad late night decision-making. Well, and the, yeah, the water getting in the way has that same feature. Right. Interesting. Well, listen, Micah, um, we want to hear a little bit about your take on where we are in the finals, but we also want to hear about what you're doing in hockey analysts because you're not just doing analytics, you're, you're presenting them in compelling ways visually. You're doing data viz. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, how did you get into the viz part of data analysis? What, what brought you here? So I, I did things from a viz point of view because I don't understand numbers. The, I'm, I'm sort of decent with them from a, from a technical point of view, but I don't understand anything until I can see it. And so, so I had such a, a, poor, a poor job of understanding the numbers that I was doing just for hobby stuff. I was doing my PhD in Australia and I was real homesick. And so I started working on some hockey stuff, some simulation work, and I didn't know what, if it was right or not. And so to see if it was correct, I had to visualize it. Mm-hmm. And so once I, and then, you know, you start going like that, and all of a sudden you, you know, you find you have an audience because you can share it with other people and, yeah. uh, and the viz parts really resonate with other people. And so, you know, it, it so easily puts things into context if you do it right, where you can say, well, look at this team. This is what I care about. And here's these other teams. And then you can see how it's distributed. And that, that visual ability is so strong that it gives you a real in. Right. So, you know, we, we love data viz and we can talk about it all the time. It's one of the challenges of, of radio, though, is talking about visualization on the radio. But can you give us an example of, you know, a, a, a data viz in hockey that you think is especially compelling or helpful, either one of your own or something you've seen from somebody else that kind of clenches your interest? Like, yeah, this is useful. This is worth doing because I, I understand the game differently once I've seen it this way. So I think the, the, the simplest thing is is just something like, where you can put all 30 teams or all 32 teams for a league on one XY scatter plot, where you can make the two axes be something reasonably straightforward, like offense and defense. Now, this is even something as simple as just goals scored, you know, per unit time, the, or something like more sophisticated, like shots or, or some sort of shot quality, but any, some sort of measure of offense on one axis, some sort of measure of defense on another axis. And then as soon as you put all of that in one plot, you can, you can immediately start to ask questions about the league as a whole. You say, okay, well, how wide is the distribution? This many goals wide. How tall is the distribution? Okay, so defense is a little tighter. Offense is a little bit wider. You know, and, yeah. and right away, you're, you're learning something about the league as a whole. Yeah. Not just about specific teams, but of course, the specific teams are the parts of the image that you're looking at. And so if you care about one team, you go, you know, if you're a fan of a particular team, you go immediately to that team by, by nature. <laughs> right. And you see, oh, 
we're uh, really terrible defensively, but we're really great offensively. Or you say, oh, actually, you know, my team is super dull and we hardly have, we play super low event games. Well, you, that's what I'm looking at, Micah. You, you, you've got, you got a website, which people should go to, hockeybiz.com, hockeybiz.com. And the, you, you describe this kind of two-axis league description. And you have one up there that's expected goals per hour against and expected goals per hour for. And helpfully, you've got every corner labeled the low expected goals for and low expected goals against corners dull. And the opposite is fun. And then you've got a bad corner, which is low expected goals for and high expected goals against and a good corner. So real quickly, you just kind of see people fall out. And, you know, sadly, for those of us who like scoring, there's not very many populated down there in the front corner, Micah. There's no, I know. It's, it's uh, the league. I mean, that's one of the things that you learn right away, right? You make that like everybody cares about their team, but you make a big plot of the whole league. And all of a sudden, you know, you can't help but noticing stuff like that. You see a big expanse of white on the graph and you think, oh, yeah. nobody does that. Right, right. Well, listen, the, I, I was poking around a little bit on this stuff. And, um, and one that really jumped out to me, Shane had called my attention to it earlier. But I, this is, you know, there are connections, of course, between basketball and hockey. And we've been talking some about with, with Seth Partnow, who does a lot of basketball analytics, and it's just led me to think about what I want to know in basketball. And then we talk some guys in hockey analytics, and, and what we want to know in hockey is often kind of the, the pressure being put on the goal on the other, on the other side's tender. Like, what kind of shot pressure? And, and you're going to map it here with actual shots, but, of course, we could back off of that and kind of look at, you know, I, I don't know if there's an expected shots or expected goals with just possession. But kind of what's the continual pressure – place by a team on the other side and you've got these shot pressure charts that are really cool can you talk a little bit about how what you want these things to achieve and what they are and where they come from yeah so the those ideas just came from i mean all of the ideas come from me trying to figure something out and i don't understand it until i look at it or you have discussions with other people and they they keep on saying things like oh you know you could really tell that goal was coming they were really piling pressure right, on right and i thought to myself how could i you know, because every now and again, people just say these things and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. Right. And, and so one of the reasons I wanted to do it, you know, like there's an artistic kind of want to see that, want to make it look good quality. But then there's also a sort of more scientific sort of, you know, are you bullshitting me? Like, is that really true? And yep. you want to look it up and find out if it's right. And so that get me thinking, how can I actually answer that question properly? You know, were they really putting on pressure? And then you, you know, now you've got a little seed of an idea. And, and from there... You know, you can just put all the shots down in a list, but then when they fall fast and furious, as they sometimes do, you know, you kind of have to smear that out so you can see how much pressure that really is. Mm -hmm. but, you know, not just let the white space overwhelm it. And so then once you have that idea, then you can go into your bag of technical tricks. You say, well, how do I make something that only happens at a particular moment in time? How can I smear that out so that it occupies a little bit more space? The way that the same way that the shot occupies space in your mind, the way you keep on thinking about a shot you know, even after it's been taken, because you're thinking, boy, we're really under the gun here. They really got us pegged against right. the wall. Right. So the, way that, the way that the shot lingers in your mind in time, I think to myself, because that's the feeling, right? That's how you make a viz really go, is if you can make what it looks like on the page match, not precisely what happens on the ice. You want to match what it feels like to the people. That's who neat. That's neat. Right. It's well, let me, let, me, let me just jump on that because... I feel like a lot of visualizations are just uh, this is descriptive as well, but they're, they're just, they're not adding anything. They're just kind of conveying the information and there's no one way to think about it. The, the sum is 
is is is the same as the hole. The hole's not conveying any information in and of itself. But your shot pressure charts convey all kinds of information in and of themselves. You can just holistically take in. And this is kind of what you want to know all the time. It's like you you, you know you pick up a game. Here's you might maybe you step into the game five. Um, was it last night? Game five, and you, maybe you missed the first period, and and you're like, oh yeah, game four. Um, and you're like, well, how'd that first period go? What's the simple way to summarize that? Well, you can pick up some stats or whatever. But if I looked at your first period chart and just looked at shot pressure, it's all the Lightning have all this pressure, and Montreal just has a little bit, and you you can see it right there instantly. You can say, oh god, that's not looking good for the Canadians at all. And so it has this holistic. If I want the details, I can get the details. You've got all the shots and all that stuff, but also it conveys something holistically. That's a good, that's an important quality in data visualization. Yes. Oh yeah. And and that trade-off, I think you have to make it explicit, at least when you're when you're working through stuff. You know, like you you can't you can't look at those shot pressure charts. I mark the goals, of course, but you can't look at that and and find the specific instant that any other shot was taken. It's just not right. there. Right. And and that's you know, you have to make peace with that going in because and, and you need a certain amount of saying, well, I'm going to obscure these things to make clear these other things. Right, right, so, right. You know, people always, you know, the criticism you get is, oh, you know, this isn't telling the whole story. And I tell people, of course not. It's telling the part of the story that I think is interesting. <laughs> it's, a, it's like the old joke. Uh, what is the, who is that real deadpan comedian from like the 80s? He had this line, Stephen, what's his name? He had this line, I have a map of the world. It's, it's, it's life size. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not helpful. Um, you know, let's just talk about this a little bit more because you capture a lot of things in here. The other, another thing you capture, I mean, you're telling me something I didn't know, which is that the, the league average is 55 shots per 60 minutes. So 60 minutes, of course, is regulation times. So you're saying 55 shots, not shots on goal, but just like shot, you know, guys pushing the puck towards the net. Yeah. That makes a sense. I didn't know that. And then you're showing volatility around that. And the peak action is like twice that high the other night. More than that. Peak action at the end of the first period looks like it might have been three times that high. Yep. Um, and so you, that's that's something you get from these things. Another thing you get is, you know, mostly it's there's kind of a hydraulic. When one team has more pressure, the other team has less. But that's not, that's not always the case. And so you see periods where you see high on both, which is probably a lot of fun to watch and kind of crazy. Um, I mean, most notably, for example, the overtime period in the game last night basically seems to be kind of an area of high pressure for both teams. Right. But of course, you know, we we will remember it as Montreal dominating that particular early overtime period. Yeah, but if you watch it, that's what you see. Like, you you know, sometimes you get these like back and forth and other times you get you get people fighting to get over the blue lines. And, and you want to try to capture right. that too. In fact, the things right. that I really like are the bits where you can see the arm wrestles, where both of the shot pressures dwindled to nothing, you know, and you get five <laughs> or six minutes where no one gets anything at all. Now that's soccer. Now you're talking soccer. That's not hockey. Yeah, right. Well, I, I, I'm a bit of a, I'm sort of sick this way. I, I, I really like defense. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'm curious about the next step on this. And so now this is, this is something I was thinking about for Seth on basketball analytics. I was, I was kind of fantasizing about some kind of analysis that, that's kind of like this. It's like tracking something like expected goals or expected points in a smoothed way. And, and you've just, I mean, I didn't think of this, of course, but it was certainly in this direction. But then I wanted to go the next step analytically and ask, okay, can we take that kind of smooth, expected, it's kind of a regime. What regime are we in right now? And it transitions in and out 
and different volatilities. But then can we ask what's helping create that? Now we can use that as a, you've used this as, this has been the, you know, the, the dependent variable essentially. No, I want, I want it as a dependent. You've created this as a measure and now we want to understand what creates, what facilitates this. Is it certain lines that, that are doing it? Is it certain strategies that are doing it? Is it coming out of power play, whatever. So can you imagine taking that next step as an analyst and just I'm mean, using, you've, you've got a relatively simple measure, but it's sophisticated, the shot pressure idea, and then using it to suss out, oh, what is it teams or individuals do that create that? And I'll, I'll just give the additional context so that the readers who haven't checked out your stuff uh, have, have, haven't maybe haven't seen before, but you also have some really cool visualizations essentially on like player usage and line usage throughout yep. the course of the game as well. So I think, yep. you know, maybe, maybe what Cade's kind of asking is to kind of maybe brainstorm like some kind of combination of those essentially of those things. Cause obviously I, I feel like player usage is obviously going to be a, a big driver of these kind of like kind of changes in the intensity of action for lack of a better term. Sure. And when you get into those sorts of questions, you know, what, what you discover, first of all, is that what starts out as a real simple idea turns out to be, you know, a thing with a lot of moving parts really fast. Right, right. Because you, know, you got, you got, well, what happens if you got your, your top line, but then maybe not anything better than your third pair defenders? And maybe they're playing against a particular smorgasbord of people, but then they're also getting to start in the offensive zone. And maybe it's also right. they're down one and you know that they play different when they're losing. Right. And so, so one of the, right. one of the reasons why, why I bring a lot of mathematics to bear on this is that I think it's, it's, you know, not to strain a point too far, but I think you can describe math as the thing that we created so that we could handle complexity without getting fooled. And Good. like that, and it's, so, it's so easy, you know, it's a little bit glib, but, but it's so easy to look at something and say, oh, well, that's the thing that really matters when you're watching it. And, and probably it does matter, but it's so easy to gloss over all the other things that were happening. Whereas if, you, if you're disciplined the way you do analysis, the way you teach a computer to do analysis, it's not going to miss all of those other factors. Mm -hmm. so, so teaching, you know, training models to try to balance out all those factors can get you into hot water pretty fast. And, and there I try to try to sort of sink back away from visualization for a little bit until I feel sure I know what the pieces are mm -hmm. because you can, you know, you can make graph after graph after graph, but if you don't know what it is you're trying to say, you know, it's just like smashing your keyboard. You're not going to come up with anything that, that means anything to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I constantly have to fight against the urge to try to wrap too much together too fast and be too and summarize too much. And so a lot of the work is just, well, you know, we don't know exactly how much this means, but we can write down, you know, this is how much offensive zone starts are worth. This is how much defensive zone starts are worth. And then, you know, once we have that well-established and once we all know what that is, then we'll all be able collectively to take the next step forward to be able to, to make more sophisticated things on top of that. I think one, one version of what you're saying, at least I may be projecting here, but one version of what you're saying is true of almost any model is that you got to be careful not fall in love with your model. You've got to be careful not believe that the model is everything. You, you make all these simplifications on the way in, but you do so much work on it that once you're done, you're like, oh, this is it. This is the universe. Like, no, you yeah. forget all the, all the trade-offs on the way in, and you need to make sure you don't lose that perspective. Micah, can you tell us something like what do you consider to be kind of the frontier in hockey analytics or maybe your frontier in hockey analytics right now? What are you working on or what are you trying to understand or what do you think would be especially valuable to push forward? Well, as a matter of discipline, I, I only change my models in the summertime. I, I try to keep them, keep them exactly the same through the season. 
too confusing to anybody listening to to change it inside the season. Yep. But then, so, so all through the years, I try to save up all the interesting ideas and and fix them later. So the one of the few things that I'm looking at now is I'm trying to look at chemistry. Trying to look at are there are there certain players who who have abilities that don't show all of the time that yes. they play, but only when they play with certain players, possibly. Uh, and and uh, I say abilities generally. So possibly are there are there uh, detriments that only yes, appear right. when certain players play with others. In particular, one one obvious angle there is um, you know are there are there limits to how much you can get from loading up lines? You know, if you put right. your three best players, the can you get their each individual impact added up together? Or I mean, you might hold open the opposite possibility that you put enough talent and you get, you know, some kind of interactive positive effect where you just overwhelm the other side. There must be sports or at least some kind of group activity where that would be true as well. You know, we had these questions about the Golden State Warriors a few years ago, that addition of Durant. Did he add more value to that team or less value than if he had gone to another team where they already had a couple of three all stars? Yeah, and that that kind of those kinds of questions. I mean, basketball, like you mentioned, Seth repeatedly, and I look up to him a great deal. The and and basketball, like as a discipline for nerds, I like is way ahead of hockey. They're you know philosophically, technically, visually. Do, do, you, do you mean the sport, the franchises, or the analytics community? Uh, both, but especially the latter, especially the community. Okay. Is that because the, the community, my, my sense of the hockey analytics community is that they've just been like stolen. They've been zapped, like aliens scooping up people from Earth and they just disappear into the franchises. You don't hear well, from them. Well, there's a lot of that too. And, um, and it's kind of the Wild West for, for those kinds of people. Some of those people who get scooped up are, are top-notch, doing excellent work. And some of them are grifters peddling who knows what. And some of them are <laughs> all, you know, everything all in between. Speak freely, Micah. Speak freely. I won't be, I won't be slandering anybody too much, but the, you know, those, those kinds of questions about, you know, chemistry and optimization and, and, and how, you know, precisely how player usage and player impact interacts the one with one another and how, you know, different players will play differently on defense, depending on who they're matched up with. Those questions are a lot more sharply defined in basketball, but they've been fruitful for me to think about, you know, what things I could improve. There's there's limitations for what you can do because of how much data you've got. And, you know, we have less in hockey available to the public than they do in, in basketball. But we have more than we have in some other sports. So you try to make the best of it. Mike, let me just let me ask one. Let me hold on, Shane, for a second. I, I, I want to understand how important you think this interaction chemistry issue is. It's terrifically interesting intellectually. They're, you know, by definition, you know, these interactions tend to be less important than the main effects. But what do you, what is your expectation? Like how much additional explanatory power do you think we can get if we understand the kinds of interactions that you're talking about now? And I know this is something we don't know, but like if you were just speculating, how much of your interest right now is just intellectual versus I think this is a real valuable margin to push? Uh, a bit of both. Uh, it's, I mean, you, you don't, like you were saying earlier, you know, you can, you can fall in love with a model and you can also fall in love with an idea too. You can say, oh, you know, I've got to get this sure. into the model. And then you do it. And even when you're sure you did it exactly right, and then you measure it and you say, whoo, a 10th of 1%, way to go. Like, <laughs> that, that's how it goes sometimes. You don't, I mean, people say, oh, well, this is important. And maybe it is, maybe it looks important, but you don't know until you do it. So, but chemistry, for instance, I think is one of those things where it probably matters a lot in certain cases. 
And, and so the total benefit, you know, like what is my global model, you know, whatever measure you use for that, like how much do I understand the sport as a whole? Probably only a tiny bit more. But but those specific instances where it does come up are tend to be high leverage. The moments where coaches are doing something weird, places where where people are trying to do something different, you know, and they they might not represent a particularly large fraction of minutes, but they could well represent a large fraction of outcome, if you like. Well, another, an, an, yes, I can buy that. And I think that's a, I think that's a satisfying answer. And I would add to it that you might expect if, te- when teams are really evenly matched, you know, deep into the playoffs, when the best teams are against the other best teams, the margins get pretty small. And in those situations, if you have an advantage due to some second order interaction or third order interaction, then it could be, it could make the difference. It could be exactly those situations where you're, you know, you're in competition against the kind of an even side. Yeah. I think, I think what, what, what makes it, I think more difficult in hockey and you kind of almost touched this already, Mike, is that just that, you know, compared to basketball where I think, I, I mean, in both sports, I think we can kind of believe, certainly it's easy to believe that there's, you know, positive, um, potentially even negative interactions between certain pairs of players. Just in basketball, you have so many more scoring opportunities and scoring events upon which to estimate those interaction effects. And so, you know, with hockey, of course, I think there is the, you know, this kind of inherent limitation that you talked a little bit about that there's just not as many scoring events. And so estimating these sort of subtle interactions is more difficult, but that's assuming you just go by things like goals or even by shots and maybe with higher resolution data and visualization, you can actually kind of get a more kind of continuous measure of events and interactions that are happening. Yeah. You, you hope that, that if you take the granularity, you know, correctly, that there shouldn't really be less information in any one sport than another, you know, it's still basically an hour of 10 people running around. And, and so that's, that's the real sample, right. Is one hour ish. Like, you know, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, depending on the specific sport over time, you know, playoffs, whatever. So, like if you limit yourself to saying, well, these are the only things that matter, and I'm just going to look at if they happen a lot or if they don't, you know that that's you're going to limit yourself pretty sharply there. And in a team so sport, let me push back a little bit on that. I mean, you could argue. I mean, at one level, you're making a measurement point. It's like, look, it's just a question of measurement. So we measure it right, and we got the same unit. But arguably, more. I mean, you could flip it around and say, Shane, actually, more happens in hockey. If you could measure the dang thing, more happens in hockey per unit time than in basketball and more in basketball than in soccer. You just got to yeah. somehow measure it. Yeah. Well, uh, you do have that effect, right, where where you can, you know, in, in soccer and basketball, just to take those two examples that you used, you can, you know, hold on to the ball for a certain length of time where there's, right. there's slightly more time. And, of course, obviously, baseball has that, you know, at a limit or cricket where you literally hold on to the ball and play stops. <laughs> for a little while, right? While while you decide what it is you're going to do, and those decisions are a, a huge part of the sport, and and so that that decision making is a big part of a big part of a continuous sport too, and and it gets you know there's that spectrum you've you've got. So if you could get all the way down into those decisions, you know, and and then you could get into the decision making, like nitty gritty, like how much time did that guy have to make that decision with the puck, and and how does that affect the quality of the decision-making rather yeah. than thinking of it as some sort of meta game, like you might, if you were doing baseball. Analysis. Yeah. Yeah. 
So do you, is hockey at links to the point where you have expected goals in any given, given the position of the players and the puck location, you can say expected goals? Yeah, it's not, it's not as good as I would like. I mean, no model, nothing I've ever made is as good as I want. But, but can, we, can we, does it help us understand? I mean, like, for, for example, last night's game, there were a couple of assists in last night's game that were just beautiful, just absolutely unbelievable, like backhand, put it right where a guy couldn't help but score the goal kind of moments. If we have good expected goals models, we should see those passes get huge bumps in the expected goals, right? Is yeah, that we are. That's kind of right where we're not. Like that's the, <laughs> is that right? Okay. That, that kind of thing, like those sorts of details where, you know, where as a fan, you appreciate a build up play and you say, Oh boy, that shot from that spot is much nicer than a shot from that spot usually is. Right. Because, because of something that happened in the build up. Right. That's, that's really where we want to go next. We are at the okay. stage sort of just below that. Okay. Super interesting. Well, that's where you're going to start getting, give more credit to maybe the creators as opposed to just the converters, you know, the guys who pull the goalie to one side so that the pass he's about to make is a higher point value pass or something. Shane, what, what would you, what are you curious about as a, as a, as a longer time connoisseur of hockey, what do you want from the hockey analytics community? Like what, what, what are you hoping you learn from the hockey analytics community in the next year or two? Well, I mean, again, I, I think what, what what we were just talking about, kind of tr- trying to uh, kind of take, you know, like continue to develop these sort of models where, you know, you can kind of estimate the probability for, based on where the puck is and where the players are. You can kind of estimate the probability of a goal and then we can start backing out or oh, really nice pass definitely increase, you know, represents this kind of change in probability of a scoring event, et cetera. So that I think is kind of in the the kind of immediate term, what I'm most excited about longer term. I think it will be kind of trying to like kind of take maybe some of Micah's work and every, you know, other people's on kind of trying to essentially measure and visualize the intensity of play and then really start talking about, I mean, as we've talked about many times this show, I'm kind of obsessed in this kind of how the playoffs represent this much more intense sort of level of play compared to regular season hockey, how overtime hockey has this extra level of intensity. So really trying to capture that by literally kind of trying to measure the intensity of play is something that I first, that's maybe like four or five years off perhaps, but like, that's kind of what I'm pretty excited about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those mm-hmm. connections where you're trying to say, well, this is what happened. And then you want to connect that into, well, why did it happen? You know, like, oh, well, this happened, be- you know, the intensity of the play caused these things that, right. or, or, you know, or similarly, you can say, well, these players, this team plays a, a style of play, which is not at all intense and it helps them here and it hurts them there. You know, like that, that's a really like something that we all would love to do. And We've been focused so much, certainly me and the people I hang out with have been focused so much on getting an accurate bead on what exactly did happen. The, you know, trying to and measure which, which external factors change those, like, oh, they were put on the ice over here instead of over there, or they were playing in the third period or the second period. And then only then, once you have that all down, can you get into questions like, okay, what is it that caused this team to have so many shots from these places that were so dangerous. Yeah. So what is it, what is it they're doing to cause that? Yeah. Then the, in, in short, the next 10 years of hockey analytics is going to be more interesting than the last 10 years. 
it's all it's kind of groundwork for the deeper insights super interesting listen micah thank you for taking the time to be with us love love the work you're doing so much fun to follow we wish you the best with it and we wish uh, we hope to hear more from you down the road thank you that's micah mccurdy Micah is a mathematician working on data viz, well, hockey analytics in general, data viz in particular. He's founder of hockeyviz.com. You can see his work at hockeyviz.com, which is just fantastic. And you can also follow him on Twitter at ineffective math, at ineffective math. Popular guy on Twitter, kicking out lots of good stuff. That has been the first half of Wharton Monday. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Between interview segments, we're coming to you via Zoom. You can jump into the conversation in a way. Jump in via Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle there. At W Moneyball. Or hit us up on email. We've got a mailbag via email. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything that comes in. We very much appreciate it. We bring as much as we can onto the show. And we love hearing from you on Twitter. Give us questions, observations, complaints, ideas, whatever you got at WMoneyball up there. Shane, I missed the conversation last week. We had this mailbag question from Stefan Tiadescu. I'm sure I've got that wrong. Stefan Tiadashiku, I'm, I'm sorry, Stefan, but he asked a great question that I think you hashed out a little bit, but it, the, the streak may continue that yeah. they're down three to one. They were down three, nothing against the defending champ, Tampa Bay lightning. They managed to eke out a game four win in overtime, which is fun. They're the big dogs coming in here. They finished fourth in their little pod. They're not supposed to be here. Let's see if they can last, but why is it that it's been so long since we've had a Canadian hockey team win the Stanley Cup? Now, we don't need to do a full version of this, but I am curious. You, you had some thoughts and I didn't hear. Yeah, so I mean, why? Well, okay, so I've got, I mean, I think there's at least, uh, there's there's one kind of structural reason I think it might be, I mean, the main point is certainly that it is has been improbable that there has not been a Canadian team. I mean, if you just kind of do the base rates of, you know, six teams out of 30 or seven teams out of three. Well, however, the kind of like it's, it's changed a bit over this entire time span, but the, that, that it is kind of improbable that there would not be a single Canadian kind of champion in that time. Um, and so I think the, the main answer is, is, is bad luck. And certainly we have had right. five. I, I think this is now the fifth five team that has gone to the finals. Okay. Canadian team that has gone to the finals and lost assuming Montreal does not, you know, turn it around in this particular series. Okay. Um, there's some structural reasons for that, I think, kind of in the early days. So, I mean, it's it's the early 90s were kind of or, or mid to the you know, late 90s were when, like, I think free agency really kind of started sub- substantially impacting hockey. And that uh-huh. was kind of at a time when the Canadian dollar was kind of weak relative to the American one. So there, there was at least a sense in the 90s that Canadian teams were kind of at an inherent like disadvantage in terms of constructing their rosters because they just weren't seen as lucrative enough for free agents, et cetera. They had a harder time kind of getting the top talent out there. And certainly at, during that time span, it, thinking back, most of the kind of dominant teams at that time were American-based. And, okay. and so – so that's part, maybe one structural reason why it's not just kind of bad luck. 
Okay. Um, I mean, another structural reason could be, as I kind of alluded to, is that, you know, similar to basketball, hockey is kind of a, it's not like an, it's not an IID every year, every team's got an equal chance, you know, kind of to win it. It's a very kind of streaky, you know, kind of dynasty based system, not quite as extreme, I think, as the NBA, where so few teams have actually won titles. But, you know, the same teams do kind of, tend to occupy a lot of those final slots, you know, for it's many years in a row. It's surprising to me, given how chancy hockey seems to be, that, that, it would, that it would be dynastic. Doesn't dynastic and chance ridden run in opposite directions? Yeah, no, and I, and, I, and I think it's because hockey is somewhere in between the two. And, I mean, our narratives change depending on particular champions. So, I mean, like, obviously, when, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights in their first year in hockey, you know, went to the finals, we see that as a very kind of chancy thing. And every hockey playoffs, we see some random goaltender rise up and lead his team to some improbable right. series victories. Um, but at the same time, you can't, I mean, you can't argue against just sort of seeing how often this Pittsburgh Penguins have been in, like at least gotten to the semifinals or the Chicago Blackhawks for many years, or back in the nineties, the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins were very dominant. So Shane, how, empirically, driven, at least you do get the, somewhat of a dynastic thing. Is it driven more by ownership and coaching or is it driven by players? These dynasties, I, I think of that Blackhawk front office yeah. as- pretty advanced and i'm guessing yeah, no that's Knights right are pretty advanced. I, but I, I don't know i, I, I mean know. i honestly i'm not sure i have as wise of uh, a wise enough opinion on this i mean i do think that it is these kind of teams like the pittsburgh penguins that just kind of run through almost multiple dynasties as they kind of cycle through players is clearly evidence that they are you know like well run and and, and have great leadership know, but, that I said Lemieux and Yager? I mean, come on. That said, well, I was just about to point out, I mean, the Pittsburgh Penguins have run through a lot of incredible players. I mean, you know, yeah. Sydney, they had Lemieux and Yager in the early days and then transitioned into this Malkin kind of Crosby thing. Crosby, and so, right. you know, maybe, maybe it is kind of like, you know, I mean, I think they basically kind of had almost like the Indianapolis Colts kind of luck I was going to go of with sort of exactly. having like, you know, lo- like essentially lucking into like the dra- being in the right draft place at the right time for two right. kind of generational talents. Right. And maybe that was most of it. So it is kind of hard to just, you know, basically kind of say what was dominant in, to their kind of like continued success. Was it the, the players they've acquired or the organization that had the wisdom to acquire those players? It's kind of, a, I, I guess, a tough thing. What chance do you put on the Canadians coming back from this 3-1? They have to win three in a row against the Lightning. What probability would you put on that? Oh, it's low. It's low, especially because, I mean, the Lightning, I think, other than, like, of course, the Canadians sneaking uh, sneaking a victory out, the Lightning look like a much, you know, are certainly playing, I think, like a, like a better team. So, I mean, I, I would put, like, you know, probably any one game. I mean, again, it's 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 if chances. I wouldn't put any one game, like, more than 60-40, but, like, you know, 40% raised to the third power is not a lot. So, you know, that's, that, that's kind of what they're dealing with basically. Yeah. Single digits. We're, we're talking single digits. Yeah. I could, you know, the last night they, 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 and that's only, a, that's assuming it's all just kind of like chance based. I mean, I also should mention just in case our listeners weren't listening uh, when we last discussed it, that the kind of more, um, you know, supernatural reason perhaps <laughs> to bet against the Canadians as well as in general, is that perhaps we're seeing the continuation of a curse. <laughs> in hockey. Right. 
That's probably that's so, probably it, Shane. So yeah. so the curse of Marty McSorley may just be striking again, and and okay. so it's not really as luck based as I'm making it. Well, sound. I'm pulling for him, and it's not just to overcome the curse. I, for something, it's me fun, as well. It's, me it's as well. Fun to pull for these Canadians since they knocked the Leafs out in round one. All right, on the other end of things, NBA game one, Bucks Suns. Now look, we've whinged about kind of the same old same old teams and the predictability of the mm-hmm. league about that kind of the beginning of Wharton Moneyball. It's been one of our themes. This is, you know, flying in the face of all that. I mean, who, no one predicted Bucks Suns. Do you think it's good or bad? This this much, you know, quote parody or this example of parody. Are you happy now that we have it? Yeah, no, I, I am. I actually do think it's good. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll concede that like having, you know, you know, having the finals not involve some of these amazing players that we're sort of used to seeing like, you know, LeBron James and Steph Curry and, and kind of like, I mean, certainly the, the back and forth and the various kind of dynamics of their success have been enjoyable to watch for the last few years, but it's really kind of cool to see. I mean, we're basically guaranteed that one of these kind of long suffering series is going to end yeah. their drought in the NBA and I think more teams kind of winning it all um, is a good thing I mean again you I wouldn't want to err on the side of like I mean you know I also want these teams to kind of represent the best teams in basketball this year and so the only kind of part I guess I feel bad about is that to the extent that like the epic amount of injuries among our kind of the the NBA superstars that's kind of led to maybe this more like sort of like random matchup yeah. You know, I, I, I'll bemoan those injuries, but yeah. I do kind of like the fact that there's essentially new blood, at least in a team sense in the finals this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see whether Giannis can get back and, and shift that. I, you kind of feel like the Bucks yeah. would have been the favorites, if not for him, but Suns are heavy favorites without him, but he's going to come back at some point, but that surrounding cast um, in Milwaukee has really done a good job in his absence. They really even did a good job knocking out um, um, the round two win against the, yep. against Brooklyn. Um, the, and I think it is more the, you know, it's, it's the fans, the, 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 the Nets and the Clippers that are in this kind of like what could have been sort of frustrating state. Yeah, and and it's, sure. I mean, what could have been when it's just sort of, you know, epic play playoff failure, like the Clippers experienced last year, I feel like somehow as a third party perspective, that's not as bad as, you know, kind of like this, what could have been that was just, bad luck injury with injuries and stuff. Yeah. Like and you know, people are wondering whether the injuries are related to the schedule. They didn't have as long an off season. Um, they're kind of put through a tougher schedule than usual. And I'm very sympathetic to that, but I think you gotta, and we had a question about this in our mailbag from Ryan Brill. So Ryan asked, you know, what what's our take on this? We haven't seen the data enough to know, but all injuries are not similarly Sourced. I mean, there. In, in, for example, a lot of people I think would focus on soft tissue injuries as being more training related than some. Mm-hmm. You know, than like Giannis hyperextends his knee. I'm, it's unlikely that that's going to be resulting from uh, a different schedule. I think. But so we need this a little more finer, um, a little finer measurement of the injuries before we could reach those kind of conclusions. I hope people are going to look at that. And it is a dang shame if it does turn out that way. But I would put a little caution on attributing all of the injury, the rash of injuries to the schedule. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I, but I do think that that is a very interesting topic kind of for, for, you know, both analytical and medical study, basically. Right, right, right. So we're going to be skeptical, like we'll we'll follow the data, but we're skeptical until we see the data that is processed in a little more detailed way. 
Um, Shane, on the baseball front, I want to hear what is going on in, I mean, all that I see from a distance. Otani is kind of what I see. But, but first, I got to say one thing because I wasn't here last week, or maybe this happened after last week. Well, I was plugging the college baseball world series a little bit for the last month or so and ended up with a, with a fine new champion, Mississippi state one. They took two out of three that did go all three games in the finals. They clipped Vanderbilt. They knocked out one of the best pitchers in the game. Vandy's known for having basically the two best arms in college. These guys might go one and two in the draft and they knocked one of those guys out in, in game three, they ended up winning nine, nothing. And Mississippi State had never won a team championship in any sport. And so this is their first NCAA championship. It's a school that takes its baseball seriously. And so you got to be a little bit happy with those guys. But it was a fun, a fun tournament to watch. And I ended up just, you know, it, just thinking about the tournament. It, one thing you don't appreciate about it is that it is a 64-team tournament, just like college basketball. It's 64 down to one. It's just that it's basically a double elimination. So you're essentially getting more than twice as many games in order to crown a champ. And so it's this long, drawn-out, dramatic thing. But you got to do it because baseball is so much. Chance. No, and I mean it. It is an interesting structure. It always, I always, I kind of wonder, like, is it more parody-inducing to have? Like, like, cause baseball, I think is an even more stochastic, like kind of random game than, than basketball is. Right. You know, and, and, yes, and, and I sure. think the, and I think probably the talent spectra, like, like, you know, NCAA basketball probably has like, it has, doesn't have a lot of parity, at least on the talent side of side of things between all 64 teams. Like, is it, is, is that kind of single elimination kind of tournament for basketball, more parity inducing than a double elimination tournament? For baseball because obviously the double elimination does try and give yeah a little of that just, disparity yeah. back basically and i was musing on this i'm just not quite sharp enough to have cracked it out as quickly yeah. as, I, as i needed to but this is the exact question i was curious about it's like yeah. what does it say you could you could take it a few different ways but basically you're asking some version of which does a better job of identifying the best team a single elimination basketball tournament or a double elimination baseball tournament. And this is a great comparison because it's, it's college in both cases. It's 64 teams in both cases. What you're acknowledging we don't know is the distribution of talent. It may or may not be the same, but setting, you have to kind of combine the two, two factors. One is the distribution of talent and the other is the noisiness of the game. They get collapsed into a single, you know, probability of the better team winning. And you're asking a great question and, and, and maybe someone out there can run this. And in fact, David Arkow, the Harvard student who simulated baseball and, and is simulating tennis might be someone to, to take a crack at it, but which, which format does a more reliable job of producing of the best team or advancing the better teams, double elimination in baseball or single elimination in basketball. All right, let's talk a little bit of major league baseball. Cause I have not been paying attention lately. Is it, True. Is it still true, Shane, that the Red Sox are outperforming expectations and the Yankees, I'm so sorry to say this, are underperforming expectations? Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's delightfully true that, yeah, the Red Sox are still are, are basically one of the two best records, I think, in, 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 in baseball right now. I think the Giants might be, uh, I, I think, the only team with a better record currently. And I actually, the Giants, if anything, are the even more surprising team in terms of outperforming expectations, I think. Um, but you got to throw the Padres so, so, in there. I'm showing, I'm showing the, Oh no, you're right. You're right. You got, you got the Red Sox and giants are at 53 Red Sox and Dodgers are at 53, but the Red Sox are at 54. Yeah, no. And I, I and so, uh, I mean, yes, the Red Sox are delightfully outperforming their expectations. The Yankees are 
wonderfully mediocre. I mean, and surprisingly <laughs> mediocre. Again, it just goes to show what what preseason expectations of oh Bayou. They just look like they were world beaters this year. It was, you know, I mean, last last offseason, I was talking about how, I mean, already the Yankees again almost made it to the World Series last offseason, or, you know, you know, were, were one of the top teams last year um, and just seemed to get better relative to their peers over the offseason. But then, you know, it turns out the on-field results uh, haven't held up that way. They've had, a, you know, and again, it's, it's the usual kind of injuries, but it's also just kind of really underwhelming hitting relative to their expectations. Well, um, the the other big story, of course, has been the sticky stuff. Yeah, spider attack. Crackdown, the spider attack in particular. And Eric, who wasn't able to join today, wanted to make sure we shared the one specific observation. Of course, everyone speculated on what would happen to spin rates and the performance of some pitchers who are mm-hmm. high spin rate pitchers um, when they started cracking down. And people saw the drop in spin rates. Um, well, one, people, people retroactively saw how much spin rates had increased in recent years, yes. kind of crazy jumps in recent years. And now we've seen a fall come back down. And Garrett Cole, um, in particular, has just been a shell of himself um, since the crackdown. And so I don't have the details on his spin rates. But yeah, no, and know. I mean, I think we are. It's going to be interesting, you know, to kind of study retrospectively kind of you know, which players sort of seem to show change points in their performance, mm-hmm. you know, right around the time when, when the baseball started cracking down on, it. I mean, again, this is all assuming it's somehow a successful and, and, and kind of well-run crackdown. Um, Roldis Chapman is another one whose performance has really degraded or, or over essentially the same time period. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I've only sort of seen, I haven't actually seen the, I, I mean, to kind of make the extra connection, you'd actually have to see how their spin rates have changed, right. I think, That's over right. that That's time. Fair. I mean, certainly it's true that both Cole and Chapman have kind of gotten blown up since, you know, you know, consistently sort of since, uh, since that uh, uh, Major League Baseball intervention. But yeah. I haven't seen the sort of, you know, the raw data and sort of like whether or not it actually has specifically affected their spin rate. Because, uh, you know, I'll, pitcher variants, even the great pitchers like Garrett Cole and Aroldis Chapman's, there is a lot of variance out there just even in it's their good. performance. So It's a really good point. Um, I, I think another track, another tack people should take on this stuff is, and this is more speculative and more um, rumor mongering, but um, track pitchers from different staffs and different um, franchises. So Cole, I'm, I'm Cole from the, came from the Astros, right? Didn't they hire yes. him? From, and, you know, those guys have, been known to push the boundaries in a few other ways and so yeah and i mean cole even was interviewed he was kind of asked about spider tack and he gave i mean uh, you can watch it on youtube whatever he gave a very non-reassuring answer that basically i i'll paraphrase as you know this has been going on for you know i'm just kind of building on the shoulders of the giants that have done this before (laughs) essentially you know well Um, the, the most stunning thing about his answer was just staring you know, you hear the term deer in the headlights. I mean, yeah, this was the personification of deer in the headlights. He just sat there and stared at the camera for 10 seconds. Yeah. Just kind oh of stalling, God. hoping people would just move on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these, these baseball, good Lord baseball. Well, I'm happy for you in the Sox. Um, it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun when those guys, they've been, you know, they're still. Up yeah, and, and I will say for anybody who, you know, is looking for an excuse to get, into baseball and get excited about this season. Cause you know, there's too much about spider tack and, you know, low, low run number of runs and stuff is again, you, you, 
Shohei Otani. I mean, anybody who has any inkling towards baseball needs to be basically watching this guy's daily highlights. So what? Because it really is something we've never experienced before. I mean, baseball, perhaps with Babe Ruth, has experienced it way back in its early days, but certainly not in our lifetimes. You don't hear you don't hear stats like this very often. That he he started a game as a pitcher in the last week while also leading the league in home runs. And that yeah. hadn't happened in a hundred years. Yeah. I mean, oh, that, named, he was named to the all-star team twice. Once as a DH, once as a pitcher. Oh, really? Gosh. I yeah. didn't Jeez. Okay. Um, yeah. No. And I, and again, like he, this, his hitting performance, I mean, you know, again, leading the league, league in home runs when he's basically one of the best pitchers in the league as well. Again, it's must see TV. All right. Well, I'm glad there's a positive story on baseball to end there. That has been Q3. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment during pandemic. I'm here with my co-host, longtime co-host and good buddy Shane Jensen. And we are delighted to welcome to the show for the first time, Stephanie Kowalczyk. Stephanie is uh, really on the cutting edge of tennis analytics. And she might tell us there aren't many people there with her, but it's fun to look at what the cutting edge is in in any sport. And Stephanie's doing fascinating work in tennis. And so we thought we'd bring her on and hear a little bit about where that sport is on analytics. Stephanie, good afternoon to you. Good morning, Australia time, and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, guys. Really pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you, and we know it's early in Melbourne. We appreciate you getting up this early to talk with us. First, tell us, what, what is it? Why is it that you're in Melbourne, Australia? You're working for Zealous. These guys are kind of um, open-minded on where people can be, apparently, because I'm about two blocks from their office right now, and you're on the other side of the world. I know. That's, that's how things are these days. Um, but uh, no, I, I came out to Melbourne, not originally from here. You can tell from my accent. Um, for a role at the um, Tennis Australia, they're the governing body um, here for tennis, and um, and they, you know, run the AO. Um, and they, a few years back, were looking for a data scientist. And um, yeah, I was lucky enough to um, to have the opportunity to take that role, and. Uh, was there for a few years in kind of an, an innovation arm, which was, it was very exploratory. Um, and, uh, you know, got a chance to um, do a number of the research projects and get my first hands on tracking data, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, really thankful for that experience. Um, you know, but they kind of went in a direction towards, towards broadcast. Um, okay. And, and, uh, it was just pretty clear that that was going to be quite limiting in what we could do because, um, oh, well, there are a number of reasons for that. But it's kind of, you know, uh, if you look at other sports, you know, the way that um, analytics has really gone, it's like generally started more in sort of the, you know, the back offices um, and and worked its way out towards media and like fan facing mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of trying to go the opposite direction, which mm which basically meant you were going to be pretty limited in the kinds of, um, you know, models, um, the kinds of um, metrics that you could build 
um, right. that were going to be able to be used by, you know, commentators, for example, or thrown up on the screen in like a few seconds between points. So, um, yeah, so I started looking to see, you know, was there going to be another place where I could do really high quality, like academic type research, but still an industry with the potential to still work on tennis if I could. And luckily, it was right around that time that, um, you know, Zealous was launching. And, um, and yeah, it's just, um, it's, I went over to Zealous, um, the beginning of 2020. And um, not only just fit wise, as far as like the culture, the kind of work that they're doing, um, but also they're being more open to distributed work, you know, right. turned out to be really fortunate, uh, given right. what was going to happen just a couple months later. Right. So, um, yeah, so Zealous, I mean, it's um, a startup uh, based in Austin, uh, but we're an international group now. Um, and uh, our whole, you know, goal is to just build the, the best intelligence platforms for sport. And, uh, and we work for multiple sports clients, which is, um, which is pretty cool that, you know, you can work with the best quality data in a range of sports and sort of get that cross training in a way with, um, with, with these models. And um, Stephanie, let me jump in and ask you on, yeah. on Zealous, but I, I think of Zealous, they, they kind of made, were splashy because some guys came out of um, major league baseball and the Dodgers and some of the best organizations and they go in and they offer high end services to a limited number of baseball teams. But I think of it as I mean, to the outsider, it looks kind of baseball focused and then I see your work, which is just extraordinarily deep within tennis. So do they use you as a kind of a frontier for tennis or do they use you as a really smart statistician who can consult on some baseball stuff or football stuff or whatever else they're building out or both? <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say it's definitely a mix. I mean, the basic model um, at Zellis is that, you know, there's a benefit in having a more um, centralized service of analytics like the typical model in a lot of the leagues, for example, right, is like, we're going to build our own analytics team in-house, right? Like they're, right. they know there's value there. It's like, let's bring in some guys, you know, put a team together and we won't tell anybody else what we're doing, right? And so it's like, you can kind of understand how that happened, but there's some real downsides to that, right? Because it means you don't know if you have the best people working for you. Um, and then also you're having to go from the ground up with everything, right? The whole data infrastructure, like how you're going to process and store all of this. I mean, and, you know, not every team is going to have the same resources to dedicate to that. So, I mean, um, so it was pretty clear our leadership, uh, Doug Fearing, who built up um, the R&D department at the Dodgers and knows that model really well. Um, and then also Luke Bourne, who comes from it more from like, European soccer and a basketball point of view, but like can see the same issues in those sports as well, right. where this kind of, you know, siloing of the analytics talent um, was actually holding a lot of teams back because like not everybody was going to have equal access um, to like the same quality of work. Um, so they saw an opportunity, you know, to have think of analytics, advanced analytics modeling as more of like a service that you could buy and outsource. Um, and so that's the basic idea. And it just turns out that that model makes a lot of sense for a lot of sports. So even though we started, it's true that our primary focus is baseball from the start. You know, it's like, 
in a lot of ways, it's kind of establishing a foothold. It's like, if you can be successful and actually provide an edge over an already really crowded market in analytics and baseball, like you're in a good position to make a case that you can bring value to really any sport. So, um, Mm -hmm. so we definitely consider ourselves like a, you know, multi-sport group. Um, And it's just that, um, you know, the kind of phase of development, it made sense to really start and focus on baseball first. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, let's talk about your work because not only are you senior data scientist at Zealous, which we've been talking about, you're also founder of onthetea.com, which is a fantastic, I think of it as a blog. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but a blog for tennis analytics. And you do terrifically interesting tennis analytics research. Can you tell us a little bit about where you come from on this? I, again, I'm I'm a bit of a loss to see someone who's as seemingly as deeply trained as you are in statistics focused with such you know, intensity on a sport like a relatively small sport like tennis. So I'm curious about both. The, can you us, tell us about both your training and your choice of sports and focus for your work? Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it's kind of maybe a fairly typical story um, these days. Uh, but, you know, I started out um, with training in, um, in statistics. Um, so that's what I did uh, in, in grad school and, and thought that that was kind of going to be my track. I was going to, you know, work as a research, probably primarily in like um, the health, health area. Mm-hmm. Um, but after grad school, I mean, um, I had more time on my hands. And it was one of these things where like, you know, go home and, um, I was always a fan of tennis and watching, and it was just natural to think of it from more of a statistician's lens. And mm-hmm. so got curious about the kind of um, data that was available. And, um, and it was really that that kind of led into starting, um, you know, kind of small, it starts with like small research projects, you just get curious about, um, you know, questions that come up in, um, in the sports media. Um, and, um, and in tennis, I mean, it was just really easy because it's just so few people looking at it from a more quantitative point of view that there were just, right. even with the kinds of data that are available publicly, um, you could still do some pretty interesting things. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it just kind of became a side passion. Um, so I was blogging for a while. I started attending some of the sports conferences, um, uh, during the year for some of the kind of, you know, more substantial uh, projects uh, that I took on. And it kind of grew from there, but it was really just, um, you know, one of these things where it was, um, I was always passionate about tennis. Who knows why? It's just, you know, it happened to be the sport that appealed to me. And, uh, and then there was just, I found this way that I could kind of marry it with my interest in, in numbers and, uh, and it, it just grew out of that. And, but I wasn't really thinking of it as a career um, yeah. until, yeah, I was just at a, I was at a Nessie's conference and, and that's so when I learned about this say, role. Say a little bit more about what conference that was. What I think. I know uh, what it's the, yeah. Northeast. So every, every two years is the new England symposium on statistics and sport run mm-hmm. by uh, Scott Evans and Mark Lickman. Um, and so it's, you know, in Cambridge every two years and it's a full day just focused on, um, academic research in sport. Um, so, 
um, I had presented there, I think it was 2015 uh, was when I presented and then happened to learn about this, this position with Tennis Australia. And that was the first time it really occurred to me yeah. that I could do this. Yeah, as, as a job. And that's kind of, uh, yeah, that's, I decided to make the move at that point. And um, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, kind of where, what led me here. Uh-huh. Stephanie, in terms of kind of like, I guess, developing analytics methodology. I think tennis actually represents kind of an interesting sort of, you know, almost intermediary state because, you know, I mean, at least thinking about the like kind of where data collection has gone the last 10 years, everything is all about, you know, very high resolution now kind of ball in place sort of data modeling trajectories and actual like kind of like, you know, player movements, you know, um, at kind of a high resolution. But in sports like, hockey soccer football you also have this kind of complication of like a lot of interactions between players happening and stuff like that tennis you've got the kind of spatial aspect where you're tracking players movements in the ball at high resolution but you don't have that nice interaction thing i mean all you have is obviously this kind of it's a one-on-one kind of matchup um and so do you kind of feel like you know do, do you have you kind of seen in the sort of methods that have been developed and stuff like that that it's almost like you know it's kind of a nice sort of intermediary state where it's one level of complication over what we used to do but like maybe not including that extra sort of team or player interaction sort of complication that so many sports have can i can i frame it as it's you have the benefits of tracking data without the complications of multiple players yeah that's an even more compact way of putting it yeah yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think there are a couple of things that you would you would think would set up tennis to be a really unique ground for like a lot of interesting modeling work because, um, well, one, you know, it's actually one of the the first sports to introduce um, tracking systems and start collecting tracking data on a wide scale. Um, that actually started in the mid 2000s when um, Hawkeye kind of came onto the scene um, for a line call review. And as part of their um, camera based tracking system, um, you know, pretty quickly you had um, those systems in place at a number of pro events and it's just grown over time from there. And it means that every time that system's on a court, it's tracking the full trajectory of the ball and the 2D movement of the, of the players, the positioning of the players uh, throughout those matches. Um, so even though it might only result in a few calls being challenged, there's actually a huge amount of um, spatial temporal data that's generated mm-hmm. from the system and that's going back. So that's like 15 years now of that. So that's one thing that you would think, man, there's this treasure trove there. And then, um, you know, as you point out, Shane, like um, there's a lot of just the nature of uh, the rules of the game that and the structure of tennis that would seem to um, reduce some of the complications that you have in team sports. Right. It's like two player. They're separated by a net. So like the region of responsibility is very clear um, and the movement is very smooth. Right. Like the ball, you're not going to see a tennis ball have a path like a knuckleball pitch in baseball, for example. Um, so the the physics are, are pretty well defined. And that does mean that, um, you know, there are some possibilities modeling wise that I think become easier. It's like a, a, you know, a nicer kind of playing ground for some of these things. Um, 
you know, one I talked about recently at the Carnegie Mellon conference um, where um, I was using a Gaussian mixture model to describe, um, you know, shot events which is essentially both the trajectory path of the ball and the paths of the two players from, you know, point of impact to the end of that shot. Um, so, you know, you could wrap that whole thing up and describe it with a fairly simple, um, you know, semi-parametric approach. Um, and, you know, it's hard to think of being able to necessarily apply that right out of the box in a lot of other sports, right? Because it's not even clear, like, what's the relevant time unit to apply it to? Like when you think of right. a more continuous right. game like basketball, for example. Um, so yeah, there's definitely um, some really nice. Um, Stephanie, let me, let me ask you just a little bit about that project because I was at the conference, mm-hmm. I saw you present it and it kind of blew my mind because you were taking a sport and you were modeling it. You were modeling the actual sport itself parametrically or at least semi-parametrically. It was extraordinary to be able to render a, a, a tennis match in statistical distributions, like a full rendering. So, so, but my sense is you didn't do that just for the intellectual challenge, but you thought that it would be beneficial. And can you talk, and this is a challenge for you. It's hard to do on a, on a show like this, but like, what is the benefit of, of rendering sport in, in that form, in this very compact parametric or semi-parametric form? Why is that desirable? Well, I mean, one one way um, of thinking of it is, I guess, from a predictive point of view, right? Like often we're we're interested in if you can um, predict an outcome um, with some set of of features, then um, it means that you have a good story, right? For what what are the the causes behind? Mm-hmm. Um, which player wins a point or not, right? So there's always, there's always, right? We've always had an interest in trying to do this in, in sport. And um, that particular model, I mean, I guess one, one origin of it was to, to just think that, well, you know, if I saw where the ball had landed and I looked at where the opponent's position in relation to that landing point, I could do a pretty good job of telling you if that point ended um, ended it, if that shot ended the point and who was likely to win. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of started from that point. It's like, well, what if I could, you know, predict that like landing position um, mm-hmm. just from right. some earlier history right. into the shot? Um, and what if I had a pretty good idea about the movement patterns of my opponent? Like it kind of started from that. And it just turns out that um, you can describe those paths um pretty completely with just a set of of polynomials and um and what's really nice is that it it turns out because of the smoothness that i was talking about that um those polynomial parameters can be well described by um a multivariate normal and it's just a matter of thinking of it as like, well, we know that there are some variety of types of shot. If I knew what that shot was and I could condition on that, like I could pretty well describe that with just a multivariate normal, Mm -hmm. the trajectory of that shot, whether it's a serve or a forehand ground stroke. um, The problem is you don't 
know those types, but that's the beauty of mixture models, right? Is like, you can think of them as a kind of unsupervised clustering where you have <laughs> these different buckets that each define their own multivariate normal. Um, so with, you know, enough, enough data over different matches so that you can capture sort of a representative dictionary, let's say, of different shot types, then, you know, that, those models, you can discover those, those types. So that, it was, that was kind of a, you know, a mix of things, I guess, that, that led to that particular work. Mm -hmm. Did you, were you, are you able to see different meaningful differences in players once you've modeled the game in that way? Was that one consequence of, of doing it this way or not? Did you look for player differences? I think that um, there were a few goals, I guess, in, in doing that. So um, one is that basically being able to attribute, um, to attribute value to, to shot events. Um, so really like, you know, like an EPV type of thing, right. but this would be um, a building block in it because you're looking at the shot level. And then the idea was that, well, if I could describe if I had a really good idea based on like the initial characteristics, like where is the impact player positioned, where is the opponent positioned and maybe some initial conditions about um, the ball off of the racket. If I looked at that, I could get, and I could through a model describe pretty well what on average was likely to happen um, in that situation. Then I could look at actual outcomes and compare it to that average and that would give me a better basis of saying, you know, was that better than expected outcome, worse than expected? So it was really one major goal was to start to get the building blocks for doing an expected value continuously right. throughout a point in tennis. So right. there was that. And then, you know, obviously when you have a tool like that and you can basically stop within any time point during right. a shot and condition on all of the history, then it becomes possible to start deriving a whole sort of interesting metrics. Because basically what it means is that you could take any window of time and isolate whatever action happened within that and be able to attribute value to that action alone. So you start to be able to like break down all of the decisions that happen over the course of a point into this really fine grained detail and attribute value to it. So, That's amazing. I, I think mean, just, it, sounds yeah. like, it sounds like the ultimate tool to have and, and the possibilities really seem unlimited. It's so neat to have that. Um, and I mean, you've got to, you know, you have to satisfy yourself that it's a reasonable representation of what's going on, but I trust, I trust that you, you're doing that kind of thing, but tell you what, I mean, Hawkeye has been around with tennis for whatever, 15 years. You've been able to model the sport in a very sophisticated way. What, it seems like the sport, given these advantages, you might expect it to be at the frontier of analytics. My impression is that it's not. So what, what's going on with analytics and tennis more generally? Why is it not making greater inroads? Or where, where is it making inroads and where is it not making inroads? Yeah, it's one of these things. I mean, we're so used to the stories, you know, the money ball story where it's, you know, statistics, um, wins over the deep pockets and, um, right. you know, it's like always a success story. Right. But actually, I mean, now that there's, we're more than a decade into the money ball era, uh, you now have examples of actually where sports have kind of just missed out. And unfortunately tennis isn't, is 
probably case in point of that. Really? And like I said, I mean, it goes back to just the fact that they've had tracking data now for 15 years, like on a large scale. Um, but if you look, you know, at the products that are out there for analytics services, um, if you look on broadcast, you know, it is the same stat summary that you've seen, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and there's nothing like for me, I think you would know that there's a real breakthrough. Like when you see some kind of fan facing um, analytics that are actually based on a model mm -hmm. and not just descriptive mm -hmm. of right. what just right. happened. Mm -hmm. um, that's when I feel like, you know, that'll be a real indication that there's been, um, there's been a change, but you know, that, that certainly hasn't come and I'm not aware, you know, of any service that's available to players for tactical analysis or strategy that, that has any of that. Um, and Steph, I mean, you, certainly gonna, not from the tracking services. If you were going to propose one such stat, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind across sports is, you know, in football, like expected catch percentage or com expected completion percentage. It's now like a routine Sunday thing. And everyone thinks about it and talks about it coming out of some kind of model. Um, if what, what is to you the most obvious model-based analytics that could be shared on a tennis broadcast or, or some candidates anyway? Well, I mean, I think um, there's some stuff that I think would be really easy wins. I mean, even just descriptive things that, um, that they don't do, for example, from the tracking data, it would be pretty easy to evaluate things like a player's, um, you know, recovery speed, like how well do they get back into their recovery position? Okay. A lot of things around player movement that okay. um, just, you know, descriptively would be easy to add on. Um, and also things about shot quality and impact quality, you know, it's like how well is a player making contact with the ball um, mm. that says a lot, right. About how well they can hope to, you know, have an advantage with it. Okay, hold on. Tell, um, tell us about that. How do we, how do we know the quality of contact in, in the middle of a match? Well, I think, I mean, that's something where definitely you would need, you would need to look at that in a model-based way. That would be something that I don't think you could really just define, um, okay. without looking at, you know, the outcomes associated with different types of impact positions. But okay. one thing in general would be like, if a player's, you know, sort of out of the typical zone, like if they're having, for example, right, the classic kind of matchup thing people talk about with Federer and Nadal, there's this idea that, well, because he has a single-handed backhand and because of the heaviness of Nadal's shot, you know, that puts, that puts Federer's um, backhand position, you know, way out of his natural zone. Right where he's having to make contact, you know, way higher than he normally, you know, would prefer to do. And okay. that puts him at a disadvantage. I mean, that would be something that you could easily try to measure from the tracking okay. data. Okay. So there's, there's stuff like that. But then, like I said, with like the shot value model, I mean, that to me, like there would just be a whole suite of things, even just around like shot quality and technique um, that you could get into where you can completely isolate the role of the opponent you could completely remove them and be able to attribute you know everything just to what that impact player can control okay and that yeah i think that would probably be the first thing where i think you could really get inroads because it's like clearly um actionable stuff right because you're isolating and you're removing out a lot of that context that can confuse how you interpret yep. the results from any particular match so i think 
that kind of area would be the one that would have a more direct impact on performance evaluation. Okay. Stephanie, you, you tweet at, at stats on the T at stats on the T lots of tennis stuff. And during some of the grand slams, at least I've noticed that you're, you're using this motion tracking to talk about, um, I think it's basically most of what I've seen has been return position. And you're just hitting this thing so hard about return, like return position and how it changes over the course of the match and what that means. Can you tell us something about what you've learned from these data and being able to observe so finely where people are when they return and how that changes and how they get moved around. What have you, it's, it's remarkable what you're doing and sharing there. What have you learned from that? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of got into the return because one, there was actually some public data um, now on some of the event websites that, that you could scrape that would have some of this positional information. It's still quite limited, but at least some of these things that, you know, it's like, where do players what are their patterns and where they position themselves on the return? And it's like, no one knows, you know, it's just one of these things that's like the most important shot for the receiver and like, no, right. So, um, so I was curious and like, yeah, there's some really surprising. And it was crazy to me too, because I'm like, have I even been watching these matches? What's going on? Like, how did I, how was I not aware of this? But it's like, you appreciate that there's so much happening in a match that you can kind of miss this stuff. But, but one of the things that stood out is that, um, players have multiple modes in where they position, and it's not clear why. Like, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, you kind of think of like, oh, well, some players are really aggressive, so they stand towards the baseline, and other players are really deep. Like, you know, again, it's another Nadal-Federer contrast. Nadal is like always meters behind the baseline. Federer's like basically right at the baseline, doesn't matter who he's playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true, but there's a lot of players that they move around. So they'll, they'll kind of have like, there's like an aggressive switch and there's a defensive mm-hmm. switch and they'll go in between within the same match. And mm-hmm. that was one of the things that was really surprising. Like two players, for example, that, that do this um, frequently are Sam Warinka and Dominique Team. Both these guys have mm-hmm. that behavior. And, and it's really not clear. It's like, is it, are they trying to break up their opponent's rhythm? Um, is it something about the score line that they're looking at? And it's like, I'm going to do this on a break point. It's like, it's not clear, you know, what it is. And so that's one of the things I'm really fascinated about. Like one, it's kind of so easy to see once you model it. And then, you know, two, that there's not really an obvious explanation. And it's, it's just kind of interesting that it's not even something that like commentary really picks up on because you don't really hear them being asked about it. And like the post-match conference is like, why, you know, why did you kind of, keep switching around it's like I don't think it's really that perceptible and that's one of the things that you really want stats to do right like some of it's you confirm what's obvious um right because that's kind of a validation exercise but then it should surprise you right you want to learn new things and I think yeah yeah, and it's just really um there's just I think a lot of space to do that in tennis which makes it it's kind of frustrating right that there hasn't been more done but at the same time it makes it really exciting of all of the possibilities that are still there yep yep listen uh we're we're about to have to let you go but of course we're in the kind of at the halfway point or near the past the halfway point on Wimbledon and um at least we have the possibility of another Djokovic Federer showdown with each end of the quarters on opposite sides of the bracket. What would you tell us to pay attention to if we do get to that kind of final between these two giants? Any, any insights from the analytics world on what to pay attention to if we get a Djokovic-Federer final? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting matchup, particularly just, well, it's such a strange time for Federer, for example. I mean, he's just played so little in the past two years, um, mm-hmm. coming off of the knee surgery. Um, so I would think probably, you know, movement and fitness would mm-hmm. actually be really critical. I mean, I think if, if Federer's serving really well and he's able to keep points short, like that that would be to his favor. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, I would pay a lot of attention to, to how Djokovic is receiving because I think that's, that's the part of his game where he just really excels compared to everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. And just, you know, the variety of his play. I mean, if he's feeling... If he's feeling comfortable and he's really, you know, able to uh, immediately kind of put himself in a better position of control on on the return, like from the get go, then I think mm-hmm. it, it could be a really tough challenge. Well, for anyone, even even right. Federer. All right. A couple of things for us to keep an eye on if we end up there this coming weekend. Listen, Stephanie, thank you for the time. Um, enjoyed chatting with you. Always enjoyed looking at your work. We wish you the best with it. We look forward to hearing more about it down the road. Thanks, guys. This was so much fun. Absolutely. Stephanie Kowalczyk, she is Senior Data Scientist at Zealous Analytics and uh, founder of OnTheT.com. OnTheT.com. You can follow her work on Twitter at StatsOnTheT, at StatsOnTheT. She's always got something up there on the cutting edge of tennis analytics. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do it, of course, every week here on Zoom. We will be back next week for the whole crew here. Shane Jensen, who's been with me in this last quarter. There's Brad Lowe, Adi Weiner, Matty D, the boss man, Deion Simpkins, associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.